Welcome to Prime Time. This week, Primeval Politics, or the episode for the purpose of exploring the history of politics and parliamentary power in the United Kingdom up until the 17th century. We're rating all the British Prime Ministers from Robert Walpole to the modern day. I'm John. I'm Rob. And I'm Kess. And today we're looking at the history of politics up until our first Prime Minister. We've been inspired by other similar podcasts such as Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium, <laughs> Pontifacts, none of whom have given us permission to do this yet, <laughs> but I'm really hoping that they'll respond to my emails soon. They don't want the competition. We're like an illegal podcast. Well, we? exactly. But unlike them, we're going to be focusing on Prime Ministers of the United Kingdom. Each episode... We'll be going through the life, history and politics of a particular Prime Minister, starting with Robert Walpole, who most people agree was the first Prime Minister. Before we do this, we're going to have to uh, catch people up on a little bit of history that's going to bring us up to that. How much a little bit of history? About a thousand years of history. About a thousand years, that's all right. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, we should probably mention, like, this podcast is entirely for entertainment purposes, mostly our own entertainment purposes. No facts were included. No facts at all. One of us has a third of a politics degree. One of us is a qualified teacher. And John is also here. So that's... <laughs> oh, and there I was hoping that we were going to be anonymous as to who was who. All right. Um, I also want to quickly establish that because we're going through a thousand years worth of history in this episode, if we miss anything, it's just because there isn't time and not because I haven't gone into excruciating detail with every moment of a thousand years leading up to the point where we start. If it's not on Wikipedia, it won't be in the podcast. <laughs> that's, that's basically what we're saying. Witans! Our story begins in Anglo-Saxon England, between the 7th and 11th centuries. There were numerous Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, such as Wessex and Mercia in Northumbria, and each of these had their own king. And these kings were absolute monarchs. As in, they ruled absolutely. But they also had some useful people around to help them govern well. As well as helping the king to govern, these people would occasionally meet in what was called a Witan, or Witengamot. Now that is a good plural. Really good name. I actually don't know if it's a plural. Oh. And I don't know if anybody knows. <laughs> oh. Because we don't even know if that's what these words 100% meant. I was going to say best plural of the episode already. Well, I mean, it's early days. But, <laughs> but also, these are Old English words. And we know that they vaguely corresponded to people coming together in meetings. And it appears that the king was present at these meetings. And that was how things worked. Have you considered that everyone is dead? And therefore, we can just say with complete authority that this is exactly what it meant. Yeah, we yes. can edit Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. There were definitely Wetangamots. Um, no, it, it's mainly that a lot of more modern historians try to say that there were assemblies rather than that there were Witans because they don't want to imply that there was a sort of formal structure to a Witan. And that's really important because we're talking about 400 years of history across six different kingdoms. So some of them probably did have formal Witans where everybody knew what they were doing and others would have been like, oh, hey, you're doing a Witan on Tuesday. Oh, I might, <laughs> might come along to that. You know. <laughs> on the way to the pub. Yeah, exactly. And at the Witan, you would have had all sorts of important people like family members of the king, perhaps their brothers or their wife or their mother, as well as earls, or aldermen, thanes, bishops, abbesses, all sorts of other important people. I like that there were women involved in these councils. So there were a few. (laughs) (laughs) Not a huge amount. In particular, Wessex didn't really like the idea of having... Were there fewer or more women than you reckon are, like, now involved in? Like, what what percentage? (laughs) Because the percentage of women in Parliament now is pretty shoddy, so... The percentage of women in Parliament at the moment is, what, roughly a third? Um, no. Possibly. I don't know. Quickly Google. 
This is the latest figures on women. How often has it changed? You know what women are like, very flaky. Very Women make up 31% of parliamentarians. Really good. I mean, it's not, but... Um, you were really you good. You were really good. Thanks, it's a dreadful thanks. number. That, that was what we needed here. Um, back in, in the day, the day being 7th century Saxon yeah, yeah, England, course, yeah. there wouldn't have been that many women. Okay. They would have always had kings. There are only two examples that we really know of, of reigning queens. And some of them didn't even like having queen's consort. So, for example, Wessex really didn't like the idea of having queen consorts. Also, you couldn't have female bishops. Lots of these roles just weren't really available to women. But there could have been some. The mother of the king often actually had quite a lot of political power, Mm -hmm. and also abbesses. In 664, the Abbey of Whitby hosted a Witan known as the Synod of Whitby. It's amazing you got that right first time. (laughs) I was perfectly surprised. Uh, This was to discuss the incredibly important matter of when to celebrate Easter. That is quite important. I mean, it is, yeah, Yeah. especially to them back then. I mean, religion is a very important theme in this episode. The abbess and founder of the abbey, St Hild of Whitby, was quite heavily involved because it was literally her abbey (laughs) and everybody else was there at her invitation. Thank you very much. My abbey, my Easter. Exactly. (laughs) Unfortunately, she didn't actually get the version that she wanted um, at the end of the uh, debate, but she was heavily involved in the debate. Let's see how much research John has done. John, how do you determine the date of Easter and what did St Hilde want? Okay, so I believe that St Hilde was quite keen on the Celtic approach, whereas... Well, we all knew that. Can you go into more detail? (laughs) (laughs) No. <laughs> uh, whereas the others, uh, uh, I say the others, the, the opposing side were keen on the Roman doctrine and King Oswiu of Northumbria ruled in favour of the Roman doctrine eventually. Although apparently he didn't actually contribute to the debate, he was merely there to facilitate. Which is interesting particularly because one of the big things we don't really know about the Witan is how much they sort of went along with the king and just said yes. Okay. This is quite a good example of the king sitting back and letting them do the debating and then saying, well, it appears that this is the winner. I see. So not just like a rubber stamp, like actually making a a decision. Exactly. But again, we've got 400 years of politics here. Would have very wildly in that time. So what we do know that they could do is that when the king died, the Witan was responsible for choosing or at least confirming the next king. Okay. Okay. Quite a big deal. Yeah. Yes. This definitely changed over the time period, especially because they gradually moved towards primogeniture and away from it being the person who had the most swords. (laughs) Right. Even then, though, as they moved towards primogeniture, it was still very important that there was a council that would make the decision because there could be competing claims or the obvious heir could be a small child. or And could... therefore not have any swords. Well, exactly. Mm. They can't really hold them. Yes. Yeah. My first sword by Fisher Price. <laughs> or there might be an invader standing over the old king's corpse with a bloody sword in hand and an army at his back. Or all of the above. By the time we reached the 10th century, though, the succession was relatively established. So everybody knew who the next king was going to be. But they had a rather unfortunate run of boy kings, four of them in a row, inherited the throne between the ages of 12 and 16. Oh, God. That's tough. Yeah, it is. Unless you are a powerful and well-established individual who, you know, might be called upon to help with the governing (laughs) Uh, of the kingdom, to provide stability and to make sure that everything carried on normally. And sometimes to push out the king before he became old enough for you to, to reject you. Yeah. In this situation, as you say, it's really important to have powerful people. One of the really, really interesting people who stepped into this power vacuum is a monk named Dunstan. Oh my god, oh, no. Dunstan! 
We've all listened to X Factor. Can't remember why he's bad, but I do know I that he is. I remember his name. He's yeah. not bad. He became a saint. I mean, okay, yes, he had a bit of a habit of turning up like a bad penny, but he was also great. Okay. Oh, so you annoying. should have a debate with Ali Hood <laughs> Between 940 and 978, he served kings Edmund, Edred, Edwig, Edgar, Edward and Ethelred. Oh, the Come one who on. wasn't called Ed. <laughs> exactly. His power waxed and waned quite a lot over this time, but there were long periods where he was just the executive. He was the person that everyone would go to. There was one point at which he and everybody else in the Witan were all meeting in a house that collapsed, and he was the only person who survived the house collapse. Oh, that is suspicious. Clinging onto a beam oh. as it all fell apart around him. Clearly so a saint. At that point, he literally was the executive. He was the only person available. (laughs) So that really does sound quite Prime Minister-y already. One bloke who's not the king running things. Yep. Modern day perspective is that he was basically the Prime Minister, at least under Edgar the Peaceable in particular. Rex Factor are never, ever going to give us permission to do this podcast. (laughs) 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 Heart's Dunstan podcast. (laughs) After his death in 988, Dunstan was made a saint. St Dunstan, as the story goes, once pulled the devil by the nose with red-hot tongs, which made him roar that he was heard three miles or more. <laughs> but he... not four miles. No, that would be That's ridiculous. how bad the devil is. He's three miles of screaming. Exactly. Yeah. Is he the only Prime Minister to be sainted? So, it depends on what you mean by Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> but he's certainly not the only saint that we're going to encounter in this episode. Ooh. In fact, we've already encountered St. Hill, that, thank you very much. Have. But there are a couple of others down the line. Okay. St. Saint, Saint Boris Johnson. <laughs> Some religions have different saints from other religions, so oh, yeah, it all gets a bit messy. Anyway, sometimes the Witan made rogue choices. In 1013, Swain Forkbeard, an invading Viking, was proclaimed king by the Witan, possibly because he had all the swords. Yes. For a really cool name. Yes, well, absolutely. Um, whereas the not-so-cool-named Ethelred the Unready was in <laughs> exile at the time. Yeah. Swain conveniently died five weeks later. Oh. <laughs> so Ethelred was sort of invited back, but he actually was uh, was told by the Witan that he was only allowed to be king again if he promised that he would be better than last time. <laughs> oh. Sit on the naughty step. Exactly. Think about the naughty step done. being Normandy. <laughs> <laughs> In 1066, the Saxon king Edward the Confessor unfortunately popped his clogs, and the only remaining Atheling, or prince, was 14 years old. What is it with these boys? I know, it's, it's very difficult. There was unfortunately also an invading army massing in Normandy, and so the Witan had to make a choice. They had literally one option, and they picked somebody else. Right. <laughs> they picked Harold Godwinson, the most powerful earl. So he had all the swords, but none of the royal blood. Exactly. Uh, compelling. Well, compelling. yes. Um, Harold Godwinson was actually pretty awesome, but unfortunately he wasn't awesome enough to defeat William the Conqueror. Who no. invaded and then defeated and killed Harold Gobinson at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. The Witan quickly realised they'd made a mistake and decided that they were instead going to select the 14-year-old Edgar. Not William the Conqueror. Not Battle William the, the Conqueror. They, they picked Edgar. It was too late. William the Conqueror arrived and the Witan ended. Okay, so that's the end of like the first... Yeah, just ended. William was like... No. no. Yeah, we have reached the end <laughs> of Witan. You've made stupid decisions. We've reached the end of Witan. So when did we start? Eight, seven? In the seventh century. Oh, 600. 600 yes. And now we're at 1066. Oh yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> and That's quite know. a lot of Witan. So, to summarise, Saxon kings would govern with the support of powerful people such as earls, bishops, abbesses, and so on, who would meet in an assembly or Witan 
but could also be personally involved in the day-to-day running of the country as councillors or indeed in their own domains. Sounds a bit parliamenty, sounds a bit governmenty. Exactly. At a time we wouldn't expect it. Curia Regis. William the Conqueror replaced the Witan with the Curia Regis, or King's Court. Although it should be noted that despite the fact that the Witan had specifically not voted for William um, and was dissolved, the chroniclers, or some chroniclers, continued to refer to the Curia Regis as the Witan for some time, which is one of the arguments made that the Witan might not have been a formal assembly, it might have just been one of... A description of a bunch of exactly they were important people we know that because they had swords yeah <laughs> life was simpler back then wasn't it? <laughs> where do i get a sword we did not have have swords because that would be really badass i don't think so uh, that sounds quite don't take unreligious-y. this from me <laughs> who are you, you to can say have your sword thank you they could have had swords mm. you don't know kess is actually an abbess <laughs> The Curia Regis was similarly made up of all the important people in the kingdom, except that this time they were mostly called Norman. <laughs> <laughs> I think you may have misread something. <laughs> Sorry, they were mostly Normans. Uh, okay. So we would have had more barons, fewer earls, and a bit more of a formal feudal contract between them, because feudalism is quite firmly established in France, and it has a, a governing set of rules that exist, sort of contracts that exist between the monarch and their people being the high people and their people being the low people and so on. What okay. is feudalism? Possibly the subject of a special episode. <laughs> yeah, why not? But in general, I remember it from my GCSE history, possibly, as being represented with a pyramid. And at the top you had the crown, and underneath the crown you had the nobility, and underneath the nobility you had the church, and underneath the church you had the peasantry. And everybody okay. owed their fealty upwards. Okay. So like it's a pyramid very... scheme. Yes. Yeah. The, the worst the OG, kind of pyramid. OG pyramid scheme. Yeah. I think Egypt was the first pyramid scheme, and then this is the second pyramid scheme. <laughs> okay, so like a very sort of strict formal structure, formal hierarchy. Mm. You owe fealty to people, yeah. yeah. And that'll come up further on. Okay. So William already had a court in Normandy, so he just brought them with him. And this was an extension of his household, so it had roles such as stewards and butlers and marshals. Were they called butlers? Yeah, that was literally that they were called butlers. Yes. Incredible. Le butler, because they were French. Well, exactly. Over the next 150 years or so, though, these roles would be established as permanent positions that existed outside of the household, some of which still exist today. For example... Butlers. Well, yeah, but- butlers still exist. Yeah. The butler of yeah. the country. Um, for example, the Lord Chancellor. Yes. Which appears to have been actually established pretty much straight away in 1066. Is it that old? Yes. That's oh, why that they're all fun. such stupid names. Yes. Lord Chancellor. Oh. Come on. Yes, you're at the other side of the table because we both love that. Absolutely. <laughs> 100%. Quick question, Robin. Do you know who's the Lord Chancellor now? I think it is the Right Honourable Alex Chalk KCMP, but I might be wrong. You are absolutely oh. right. What is the Lord Chancellor? Nice. <laughs> so what is the Lord Chancellor today? The, the Lord Chancellor is sort of something to do with judges and the okay. legal system. We have more recently set up a job called the Justice Secretary. That's that's a cool job name. It is a cool job I'm name. I'm literally the Secretary of Justice. It's, I, like, it's like a superhero. It's like a, I'm Batman. Yeah, I, I write down all the justice. <laughs> and so most of the justice stuff is done by the Justice Secretary. There are a few jobs that are still done by the Lord Chancellor. And so to make it easy, the same person normally gets both jobs. But okay. Lord Chancellor sounds cooler than Justice Secretary. Or no, no, so, no. Oh, well, there you go. You don't think so. It's like oh. Justice Secretary is like his super, like super secret alter ego. 
I mean, benefits <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> Super secret, as in both jobs are published on the gov.uk <laughs> website. Yeah. The Lord Chancellor's role was given to Thomas Beckett in 1155, oh, a name that you oh, might recognise. I do. Uh, that, that was before he became Archbishop of Canterbury. He had a bit of a sudden conversion. I think I say before he lost his yes, head. It's <laughs> also true. Well, that's, so again, a sudden conversion. But <laughs> he literally, he was the... Uh, the, the Lord Chancellor, and then it was announced that he was going to become the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he quickly took holy orders, and then very quickly... Wait, he wasn't... He was, like, nothing in the church he before He was that. nothing in the church before. He was Incredible. best mates with the king. Does this mean I could become the Archbishop of Canterbury? Unfortunately. I, oh, oh, actually, you know what? <laughs> yes. Yeah, in our <laughs> lifetimes, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it, Cass. Absolutely. Right. If it's you, been your dream so since 20 it, seconds ago. It has. <laughs> Other roles that were introduced... <laughs> The Lord High Treasurer was introduced in 1126, been vacant since 1714. Really? The Lord High Steward, introduced in 1154. Robin, do you know oh. what <laughs> the Lord High Steward does mm, now? No, I don't. I've heard of it. Can I guess? Yeah, please. What do we think a steward would do? I mean, it sounds like a butler. It does sound like does, a butler. Does the Lord High Steward polish all the silver? Oh, is it like he's on a cruise ship? He's the cruise ship host of the Parliament. You get you get to like Westminster, yes. and he's there in his white suit. He's yeah, like, here's the swimming pool. Yeah, the buffet's there. <laughs> Don't touch the fish. I mean, you're not far off. Perfect. I, I think we are. <laughs> you are. <laughs> We don't have Lord High Stewards anymore, except that Because they're all on the cruise ships. Well, <laughs> except that we appoint them ceremonially <gasps> for one occasion. Oh my gosh, wait, can we guess what the occasion is? Please. Is it the annual cruise ship? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> regatta. <laughs> is it the Henley Regatta? No, okay, I, I mean, if it's going to be one occasion, it's going to be the most important occasion, which would be... Coronation? The coronation. Yes, oh, exactly. Good so Sir work. Gordon well, Messenger was appointed as the wait, sorry, Lord who? High... Sir Gordon Messenger. Was the Lord Shout High Steward? Shout out to Sir Gordon Messenger <laughs> if, if you're listening. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> he was appointed Lord High Steward for the purposes of the coronation because we decided that we needed one. What did he do in the coronation? You know, was I there? genuinely don't know. <laughs> I, I bet he held one of those swords because there were a lot of people holding swords. I think he was handing out mojitos at the door. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if we've established anything this episode, is that swords are important. So he probably True. yeah, had, he probably, yeah. Had probably had a sword. The, the mojitos were like balanced on the sword. Yes, yeah. that's that. Look, that's Great. tough. Not that's why tried, he's the Lord, hard, the Lord High Steward. <laughs> yes. No one else can do it. No one else, no one else is qualified. <laughs> Moving on. Although it happened a little later, one of my favourite roles is the position Lord Privy Seal, meaning the person responsible for the king's personal private seals. Exactly. <laughs> the Lord Keeper of the Octopus. Yeah. Ernest Bevan had a remark in the early 20th century, which will really help you here, which is that he explained that he was neither a Lord, nor a Privy, nor a Seal. Oh, oh. that's good. That is, that is pretty good. So what was he? Well, he was responsible for the King's personal, as in Bartu. private, <laughs> Seal, as in the thing that you'd use to sign letters. The big thing you stick into a wax. Yes, exactly. That nobody has these days except Robin. I do. If you want me to send you a letter with a wax seal, pay for postage. <laughs> so the Lord Privy Seal position was created in 1307. A little later, but I thought it was quite fun to discuss it here, because this position actually did emerge from the King's wardrobe. The King's... Wardrobe. He came wardrobe. out of the King's closet. He came out, came out, of, the out of the closet, yes. I mean, pretty much, yes. The King's wardrobe was an administrative department. My wardrobe is an administrative <laughs> department. <laughs> Mine's not quite big enough. It was responsible for clothes... 
jewels, armaments, swords. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is pretty- Wait. So this guy was in charge of the swords. He came from the um, from the wardrobe. The wardrobe was a department. <laughs> you can't just say that as <laughs> if that's explained. He came <laughs> from the wardrobe. Like Sorry. The- These days, we have government departments like the treasury. Yes. In those days, they had government departments like the, the wardrobe. wardrobe. Okay. The wardrobe, it was bathroom, the, <laughs> the kitchen. Government department. And I'm the minister the reason... for Bed Bath and Beyond. <laughs> Shout out to Bed Bath and Beyond. <laughs> <laughs> Who are not sponsoring this. <laughs> no, they're not. The reason that the King's Wardrobe became a powerful department was All the Swords. Well, because of all the swords, yes, but also because the King's Wardrobe initially began as we need to have somebody to look after look after our stuff, and that somebody is going to have swords and also carry our jewels. Oh, and actually, while we're on the move, it'd be quite useful if we could pay people quickly rather than having to send money back to wherever the treasury is why don't we just use this helpful person here who's carrying jewels right now so the wardrobe became this sort of flexible department that would do whatever the king wanted because they followed the king around with mm. his clothes and also his jewels yeah, and his swords the money and, and sort of swords thing. yeah so that department slowly flexed itself into lots of different positions that sounds very odd um, <laughs> and then uh, and from it the Privy Seal position is one of the ones that came out of there. Right. At one point, it was actually more important than the Exchequer. Really? So Privy Seal, he dealt, they dealt with his, like, private... Yes, so the Privy Seal, exactly. The Privy Seal could help the King send private correspondence as opposed to using the Great State Seal, which would be looked after by the Chancellor. Right, so it... the sexy letters, the... Yes, but also sometimes, and this is why the wardrobe became really important, sometimes they could send the important letters because the King was in a bit of a hurry and it was quicker to get the Privy Seal, who was with him in Norwich than it was to write to London and get the Lord Chancellor to actually seal a proper right. letter. So it was. So you get like an unofficial, just like signed with like an emoji. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. Just a sort of back lane of royal power. Just, oh, I'll just use the personal seal. It's okay. right here. It's all fine. It's like the king sliding into DMs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. In the early 13th century, the Curia Regis split into two forms. We had the Magnum Concilium, or Great Council, which would be summoned occasionally by the king to talk about the big stuff. Magnum stuff. Exactly. And then we had a smaller council, which would travel with the king and handle the day-to-day. What What was the difference between the big stuff and the day-to-day? So the really interesting thing is that there isn't actually any difference between what the two councils could do. And, in fact, it was always maintained that the king didn't need the big council. <laughs> he just liked them to be there because getting more people involved meant that there was more consensus and more political stability and... That way, when you're trying to govern a country that you've just conquered, you have a lot more people around you that you could trust. Right. It's just, it was just like a fake job to make them feel important. Initially, yes. But the problem is that when you start consulting people on things, they start to feel that maybe that means that they should be consulting yes. <laughs> So a really good example of this is tax. So initially, the big council was not consulted about taxes. But then they started to be told about taxes, and then they started to be asked about taxes, or at least informed that taxes were happening, and eventually they started to feel that they should know about taxes. That was something that was now established as them being asked. So although the monarch, in theory, ruled by vis et voluntas, which means by force and will... That's pretty tough. Yeah. In practice, these councils started going, hey... Stop it. (laughs) You got us involved. That means that we're involved now. Other things that they would have handled... In general, the big one would have conducted state trials and made 
big important laws and that sort of thing. Whereas the smaller court would have been a bit more advisory and handled more day-to-day stuff like issuing letters patent. There was always a bit of an understanding that the two were kind of the same and also that the king theoretically didn't need them. He just he just liked having them there. But they would get across if they weren't involved. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is a bit of a precursor to the separation of parliament from the Privy Council and government and cabinet. Right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Big one. It makes no sense. I have no idea what that means. So this is a really good good opportunity for Robin to explain about the difference between government and parliament. Rob. Ah, okay, right. Government runs the country. It administers. It is sometimes called the administration or the executive. It carries stuff out. Uh, In this country at the moment, it's led by a prime minister with his cabinet and his ministers and all the civil servants who do what they're told. Parliament, on the other hand, is the much larger council of people, many of whom are elected in the House of Commons, some of whom aren't in the House of Lords, but a broader sort of national conglomeration who make the laws and to whom the government is accountable. So Parliament chooses the government, and in return, the government must answer to Parliament. Parliament chooses the government in as much as if you elect a Parliament that has loads of Conservatives in it, the Conservatives will form the government and run the country. And then after election, if you choose a massive Labour Parliament, then... So Labour will start to run the Not country. everyone who gets elected is in the government. Correct. The government's old... like a representative, like a front like a front bench. Yeah, I mean front bench is exactly the, the phrase that they use. It basically oh. means like the the people the people who Parliament chooses to govern, based nowadays on party majorities. So whichever party is the biggest, they will get their leader will become Prime Minister and their senior people will become the ministers. But it's only ever like a subset of Parliament. Okay. So the bigger Parliament chooses like a small num- a small group of its number to run the country to be the sort of executive committee of the country and that executive committee has to answer to parliament so parliament ans- asks them questions parliament can kick them out uh, and pick someone else to be the government um, and parliament also makes the laws okay I'm, I, I think I've got it thank I've you very much some things. nice so also in the 13th century the Angevin Empire started to collapse the what? the Angevin Empire the kings of England <laughs> were actually French. They had invaded from Normandy. They owned Normandy. Weren't the Normans Vikings? They were. Yes, so actually there was a very interesting settlement where a few centuries, I think, earlier, the Vikings had essentially arrived in Normandy and been invited to stay. Like to settle in Normandy? Yes. So are we saying that actually the original kings of England were Vikings? I mean, That's way cooler. Yes. That's a lot cooler than people called Norman. They were definitely... (laughs) definitely descended from Vikings, but they were French. They had agreed as part of a settlement that they were going to live in France and be part of the French kingdom. And this is really important because, as we said earlier, the French kingdom worked off feudalism. And that means that there were very specific obligations that the Normans owed to the French king because they were lords under the French king. Yes. Also, in this period, when you married someone and they were the only heir to a large empire, (laughs) their empire got added to yours. So uh, the English kings actually owned more of France than the French king did. (laughs) So they owned more of France, but they still owed fealty to the king. So the king was still like their overlord, but they controlled more land directly. Exactly. King of Sweden buys a garden in London. He doesn't become king of the garden in London. (laughs) Exactly. That's really disappointing. The French king certainly felt so. (laughs) Might there be a war over this? There certainly was. Yes, <laughs> so specific garden in London. <laughs> the French king was doing his best to take this land back. 
and the individual provinces also had generations of their own history of not being part of some smushed together conglomeration of, of English stuff. So they were doing their best to kind of get out of that as well. It was all kind of falling apart a bit, especially because it was being held together basically only by the will of the king. And at this point, the English king was King John. John didn't want to let go of his kingdom, so he forced the barons to raise heavy taxes in order to fund an army. Do you know what? I read about this. He was raising these taxes and then there was a fox and King John had an advisor who was a snake. Wait a minute. Are you talking about the Disney movie, Robin Hood? Oh. No. <laughs> it's, a, it's an actual historical... Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, oh. Based on, it's based on facts, based, right? Based on Robin Hood is a real person. Sure, but if you're going to base things on Robin Hood, then surely you have to pick any one of the many better adaptations of Robin like, Hood. <laughs> he was Kevin Costner. Yeah. Exactly. That's <laughs> clearly the better one. If yes. they don't burst into singing, halfway th- burst into song halfway through, then it's, it's not the same. They had a war over who had the best tanks. John marched into France with his army, and he very promptly lost at the Battle of Bouvines in 1214. Bouvines. He was forced to sue for peace, and he even had to pay compensation for invading France. Oh, that's embarrassing. Have you been invaded in an invasion that wasn't your fault? (laughs) Or English compensation lawyers for you? So this left John in a bit of a difficult situation, because he had very little money remaining, he had very little land in France remaining. He'd even lost Normandy, actually. It was quite embarrassing. Oh, that is embarrassing. They were yeah. Normans. Yes. Yeah, okay. That's, yeah. um, that's like when the Romans lost Rome. Well, indeed. Mm. And then they had a sulk about it for about a thousand years. Yes. There was very little of an army remaining. And he had quite a lot of enemies in the barons at home. This so, isn't sounding good for John. Yes. He had previously ruled by force and will. And at this point, he had no force. And he'd kind of demonstrated a lack of will. He'll be fine, though, right? No. I, no, no <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> He actually did have an out, but we'll get to that in a minute. So the barons threatened war, and in an attempt to head off a civil war, John and the barons agreed to sign a document called Magna Carta Libertatum on the 10th of June, 1215. I've heard of this. Yeah, Magna Carta. It's one of those things that everyone's heard of, but no one's quite sure what it is. But everyone knows it's very important. What is it? Magna Carta is a document that lays down a lot of the declarations of rights and freedoms that we expect today. It covered quite a lot of things, including, I think at one point, fishing rights. Um, (laughs) To be fair, we have been arguing about fishing rights quite a lot recently, so it's it's the stuff that keeps coming back. Well, exactly. The gift that keeps on giving. But it also established that the monarch was subject to the law, and that the monarch couldn't make law or raise, and by raise I mean set or collect, taxes. So the monarch couldn't tax people without consent from the people. In this case, the rich people. This document was a declaration of things that the barons held dear. It's looked back to now as being a supremely important document in the history of this country. That's possibly overdoing it a bit, especially given that it is largely copied from a Charter of Liberties from 1100, and many of the things that they were asking for were things that were being asked for over the previous 200-odd years. So it's not that this is the this is the moment where it all happened, but it is something that we look back to with pride, I suppose, as part of our history, yeah. much in the same way that the Scots might look back to the Declaration of Our Birth, which didn't necessarily do very much, but it is a very important document in Scottish history. Sort of line in the sand, stepping stone, Declaration of Independence. Yes. Line in the sand is a good way to name it, because it didn't actually do anything. <laughs> um, it was supposed to be a peace treaty in order to stop a war from happening, but neither side really took it seriously. So it turned out that John was actually just stalling for time, and he'd already written a letter to the Pope saying, please make sure that you cancel any treaties that I sign. <gasps> yeah. So he, he had like his fingers crossed behind his back. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And within two months, he had a letter from the Pope declaring that 
Orders. <laughs> Sorry. I have, to, I have to implement a swear jar. <laughs> Within a month of the Pope declaring that the Charter was void, a war broke out. Which sort of suggests that the Charter was quite useful for stopping wars. Nevertheless, the ideas that were established or at least recorded in the Charter continue to remain important, and they will be re-established and fought over for the next century or so. Well, some of them for much longer than that. Fishing rights. Well, absolutely. So after having set off the war, John did everyone a favour and died. (laughs) His son and heir, Henry III, was only nine at the time. Another boy. Yes. And he was supported by 13 executors who were appointed at his father's deathbed. Like... A government. Yes, exactly like a government, because they did not have the approval, or they certainly (laughs) weren't the barons, they were the people on the side of the king. Most important among them was a man named William Marshall, who was given the title Rector Regis et Regni, which means Governor of the King and the Kingdom. Is this William the Marshal? Yes. <gasps> so good. And also, I mean, Governor of the King is putting you pretty high. Oh, well, I that's mean, like, you can't get higher than you that, can't. right? Like, unless you're the Pope, I guess. The person who yeah. had personally saved the life of King John's mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. I mean, he was awesome. Uh, he also pretty much single-handedly prosecuted the war against the barons on behalf of the nine-year-old Henry and repelled the French invasion and pulled the country back together. God, what a life. He's very cool. So Henry grew up in a bit of a delicate political situation and his councillors were forced to tread quite lightly. So over the next 10 years, Magna Carta was reissued three more times in various slightly redacted forms. For example, there was a particularly pernickety clause that insisted that the barons be able to form a council that had to be consulted about things and that didn't make it into the later revisions oh i see but that was sound that's sounding house of lords that's sounding a sort of standing committee of lords mm, debating exactly. stuff yeah didn't make it in though unfortunately <laughs> how much power does the house of lords actually have i think we'll have to do a special episode on the house of lords because we'll. it okay, used to be sorry. a lot and now it's not very much but still some but in more interesting ways mm. so as magna carta was issued and reissued and then fought over and so on a number of its rules did start to take hold, especially because the councillors weren't in a situation where they could make really difficult, you know, they couldn't throw around the power of the king who was a child, not least because they weren't the king. So a lot of the things that had been agreed on in Magna Carta really were, were kind of established in this time. When the dust settled on all of this, Henry was really angry with how his councillors had handled things when he was young, and so he decided that he was going to rule on his own for 24 years with no councillors. Of any kind. So he's swung back from a bit of government and a bit of parliament to all knee. Exactly. Okay. And did the barons like this? Um, I don't think so. No. Uh, you know, I genuinely don't actually... I was tempted to say this was a bad decision, but to be fair, he did make it 24 years. It's That's pretty true. good. It didn't go yeah. as badly as it did with John. So, yes. Yeah. Then we move into the Third Baron's War. But this is also when we see the term Parliament first being used in the Ooh. 1230s to represent the body of important people that the king would summon in order to pass laws and raise taxes. Where does it come from, the word Parliament? Now then, I'm going to say it comes from parler in French, meaning to talk. That sounds true. So It sounds... I don't know that, but sounds that's believable. what I've always assumed. Yeah. It sounds plausible. Google, yeah. Google number two of the episode, yes! Okay. Google <laughs> seems to think so, yes, Thanks, absolutely. Google. Haven't we just broken up with the French? Uh, yes, but we were still French. Oh, okay, fair. Also, the barons had actually asked the French king to invade on their behalf in order to establish Magna Carta. Okay, so we haven't really broken up with the no, French. Exactly. Well, like, no. We've broken we, up we with were, them, but, but we kind of we keep texting. We were you know. really trying to get back together. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Moving onwards, into Henry's later life, after his years of personal rule, 
1258 and 1265, we have two very important parliaments. First up is the Oxford Parliament, mm. also called the First Parliament or the Mad Parliament. Okay, those are two really different things. Yes. They are. If the first one was that mad, why was there a second? <laughs> well, the Mad Parliament is actually just a clerical error, unfortunately. Um, but people did think it was called that for a really long time. So it appears that a chronicler wrote Illud Insigne Parliamentum, meaning that distinguished parliament, but unfortunately this was at some point misread or miscopied or something as Illud Insane Parliamentum, oh. as in that mad parliament. Yeah. That is so much cooler. That Would you rather be a member of the mad parliament or like, yeah, that parliament yeah. that happened a bit? I mean, sure. At the time of the mad parliament, Henry III was still king, and now an adult, he was no longer unpopular because of his father, and instead, he had his own reasons for being unpopular. <laughs> That's for striking out by himself. Yeah. Exactly. For example, his patronage of foreigners, whom he was appointing into all the top positions. Oh. He was also quite strapped for cash, because he wanted to conquer Sicily as part of a deal with the Pope. But Sicily's a long way away, and hard to get to. Well, and full of mafia. Indeed, yes, full of mafia. So I bet the, they didn't even have aeroplanes back then. That would be hard. The Sicilian business, as it is known... This was a deal. <laughs> the Sicilian business. The Godfather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. It really has those tones about it. So Henry's second son... You'll come here on the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> on the day of my son's wedding. <laughs> my son, Edmund Crouchback. No. I mean, he sounds like a Disney villain to me. Yes. That's a great name. It's not as good as Forkbeard, though, is it? It's, it's not. But Swain Forkbeard sounds like somebody who might come through for you in the end. He's much cooler. Edmund Crouchback would only run away and possibly drown in a swamp or something. So Edmund Crouchback would invade and conquer Sicily, and the Pope, Innocent IV, would pay his expenses. Pope, not so Innocent IV. Well, exactly. (laughs) Because the Pope didn't like the ruler of Sicily, so he was encouraging... Famously, the Pope and the Mafia really don't go on. Well, exactly. But also, he asked the English... To just invade for him. I mean, we, we weren't exactly nearby, as a problem pointed out. There was no one else he could ask. Hmm. Well, no one, no one closer. Well, presumably everyone else said no, because that, <laughs> that would be hard. So Edmund did actually make it to Sicily for some sort of ceremony. But as far as I can tell, he didn't actually have an army with him. So he was essentially on holiday. <laughs> Has he not learned that swords are important? <laughs> Indeed. He clearly hadn't listened to Irish. He packed his swimming trunks. <laughs> he did spend a lot of money... Which was super inconvenient because the Pope died and the new Pope, Alexander IV, said that he was not paying his expenses. Oh, that's kind Aww. of obvious. Yeah. So he demanded that Henry would cover them. And if Henry didn't cover them, then Henry would be excommunicated. Oh. Which the Pope really does have the... whatever the word for that is. It's the nuclear option, really, but he just presses that button a lot. Over yes, the especially given how much Henry... Sorry, Henry's father, John, had relied on papal support in terms of getting the Pope to repeal Magna Carta. This would have been bad. Henry needed the Pope's support. However, he didn't really need to invade Sicily. (laughs) The leading lords, including a man named Simon de Montfort, demanded that in return for their assent to taxation, a new style of government by council would be established. Oh, that Mm. sounds very governmenty. This would be called the Provisions of Oxford. That's not a catchy name. It's not. Sounds like a picnic. (laughs) (laughs) The Council of Fifteen Barons would be on hand to assist and possibly control the monarch at all times. And now this is sounding House of Lordsy. Yes. Even more. The Chancellor and Treasurer were limited to one year in office and were not allowed to take direct orders from the King. Ooh. Yeah. The Chancellor was made to swear that he would not seal any important grant without the assent of the majority of the 15 barons in the council. And there would be three parliaments a year. 
This is so modern parliamentary. Mm. Well, maybe we have more than three a year at the moment. But well, we have, yes. I mean, it's really quite forward thinking. Yeah. Also deeply embarrassing for Henry, because essentially all of his power has just been taken away. Yeah, you're just a figurehead. Yes. So he was backed into a corner, but he really didn't want to do this. So there was a bit of a power struggle, and he eventually got permission from the Pope <laughs> not to conquer Sicily. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was all about Sicily. Yes. Oh. So he tried to back out of the provisions of Oxford, but the council wasn't too happy with this. So instead, he decided that he was going to get somebody else in to arbitrate. So he called on the French king, Louis IX. Oh, not again. Well, yes, we still wanted to get back together with the French. Yeah, so we decided them to, to, you know, they were going to arbitrate on between us and our ex in order to <laughs> <laughs> show how much we loved them. This was a deal called the Mise of Amiens in 1264. Louis may have had a vested interest in the concept of royal prerogative. (laughs) Being a king. Yes, exactly. Uh, But he decided in favour of Henry, which the barons didn't like, and so civil war broke out. God, it's endless, isn't it? It is. Unfortunately, Henry III took after his father, King John, in that he wasn't very good at winning. Oh. Yeah, so Simon and the rebels won handily. They is defeated this Simon de Montfort. This is Simon de Montfort. Okay. Yes, I do have to mention actually, and, and this is a difficult one. This was not a good era to be Jewish in Britain, and Simon in particular led a number of massacres of Jews, and it's oh. really quite horrible to read about. Simon was a very interesting character, and he was essentially the first parliamentarian. But he and a number of other people owed quite a lot of money to Jewish people, and because they weren't Christian, they were quite a, a, a helpful group to point at, and, and things went very badly for them in this era. However, Simon was quite good at warfare, so he and the rebels defeated Henry at the Battle of Lewis, despite Henry having the larger army at the time. Simon had taken over the country, he had the king and the queen and the prince in captivity. But they had just deposed their king, so how were they going to actually rule? Well, they called a parliament in 1265, in the name of the king. Who was in prison, and presumably didn't want this to happen. Presumably. But this time, they wanted to maximise their authority, or possibly their collective culpability. So they invited knights and burgesses, i.e. people who were barely a few rungs above the peasantry. And they summoned them from every county and every borough. The knights were actually summoned from every county to be chosen by their county court. And similarly with the burgesses. And this means that there was actually some form of election, or at least people being selected by representatives. I mean, it was really... Yeah. You know, there was representation going on here. Again, it sounds very House of Commonsy now. Yes. We've got people who aren't lords being summoned to Parliament mm. from all over the country. Unfortunately, it only lasted for about three months because uh, Henry's son, Edward, managed to escape from captivity in quite a daring feat. And it turned out that he didn't take after his father in that he was actually quite good at winning. And so he mm. rallied the royalist forces and defeated and executed Simon brutally. Oh, do I want yeah. to know? Well, you might want to know that Simon de Montfort's head was cut off and his testicles were removed. <gasps> and they were, in fact, attached so that they were hung on either side of his nose. Oh, dear. Right. Yeah. This, I have questions about this. Get asking. I don't think I have answers, but please. <laughs> how, how did this... Did he have... Did he have a really big nose? How were they attached? Were they, was, were they like draped, draped over his nose? Were they like through the bottom bit? Like what? What, what oh, was this? Like thing? a nose ring. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to to reckon that either. <laughs> I'm going to reckon. I'm going to reckon how Simon de Montfort's balls were attached to his face. <laughs> either they were nailed on. Oh. Oh no. Before or after he was beheaded? This is. 
I think after. Yeah, let's go after, before uh, it's, it's too brutal. Yeah. But I'm also going to reckon that they only stayed on there for long enough for them to take a photo, and then after that it all just sort of fell apart. Yeah, that's, I that's think probably... we need to go over the history of photography with you. No, <laughs> 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 that wasn't included in my research. <laughs> but I also And know then that... Henry drove off into the sunset in his Porsche. <laughs> this platter with the uh, head and testicles, was sent to Wigmore Castle by Roger Mortimer as a gift to his wife, Maud. No. Oh, I bet she was delighted. Oh, I'm what sure. do you do with that? And also, how, how, did, I mean, how did he get it there? How did he maintain the structure and integrity of this? I don't know, but I'm guessing that what you do with it is you probably put on some sort of production of Salome. You know what you need? <laughs> you know what you need to get the head and the balls from him to the castle? You need the chief steward. The steward, yes, the Lord, Lord, High, Lord steward High Steward would carry the. He could carry it. Oh, yeah. or, or one of the butlers. Yeah. 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 Fair. Well, I bet Maud was furious. That's a bit like on Christmas Eve when it's oh, oh damn it, I've forgotten to buy presents, so I have to nip down to the petrol Which... station. It's the only thing that's open. What have you got? Oh, the, head, the head of Roger Mortimer with his balls on. Oh yeah, I got her that last year, but I can suppose I can do it again. The head of Roger Mortimer. Who's yeah, exactly. <laughs> Simon. Oh yeah, that's the one. Yeah, well, which... it was it was his head or mine. <laughs> which anniversary is that? Well, twenty is rubies. So, blood and guts to one side. It's important to note how much things have moved on by that point. <laughs> Many of the things that were fought for by the previous generation, such as taxation being a power of parliament, were taken as written by this next generation. That was just understood. Similarly, the model that Simon established of inviting knights and burghers would continue even this <laughs> <after. laughs> Well, exactly. You've got a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> they needed the burgers at Parliament, yes. Guys, but, we've been debating for hours. Can we just get some very burgers Very early in? delivery. So there is actually a rule in the Netherlands at certain council meetings that if the council meetings go beyond a certain hour, that it's legally required that croquettes be served. No. Cricket. Specifically croquettes? Yeah, specifically croquettes, yeah. Oh, how is, is there like a specification of what has to go in the croquettes? I don't know, and I'm now worried that this law might have been repealed since the point where somebody told me that. But I know it's it fine. was we'll a law at one point. <laughs> go with it. Yeah. That's so a clearly, fact. in advance of this, but inspired by it, they decided they were going to have burgers in Parliament. Yeah, yeah. This model would continue even after Simon de Montfort had been kind of mutilated. Edward I established a model Parliament in 1295, which decided apropos of nothing, to summon two knights from each county and two burgesses from each borough. A model parliament. A model parliament, yes. Yeah. Very small. Very tiny. <laughs> very, very attractive. Yeah. Oh, oh they, were, they, were, they were gorgeous. Mm. Oh, the, was... they, the better one was the supermodel parliament, but then... <laughs> <laughs> it was just Nicole Kidman again and again. And again. <laughs> Nicole Kidman. Sorry, that's my dreams. Sorry. <laughs> so... Two knights from each county to be chosen by the county court, two burgesses from each borough, two citizens from each city. These will be chosen by the local authorities. This is this is proper parliament. Super parliament, yeah. 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 Sorry, model parliament. You can call it super parliament. Super <laughs> Fast forward 300 years. There were relevant things in this time, but we're going to move very quickly through the next couple of hundred years. In 1341, the commoners i.e. the knights and burgesses and so on, decided to be seated separately from the clergy and nobility in what would later be called the Houses of Commons and Lords. So there okay. it is. Oh, so they were, they were meeting together as one They were originally all meeting in one big, yeah. Presumably, though, they just didn't like sitting next to each other and all got very, yeah. You know how it is. Hmm. And in 1430-ish, the franchise was established. We said that these people would be chosen by their local authorities, but really that's quite vague. Well, now it was understood that you had to have at least two pounds worth of property to be able to take part in the selection of your representative. I have two pounds worth of property. I nearly have two pounds worth of property. 
How well, much was two? I dropped ten p on the way here, so I'm down to one seventy. Oh, you can't be elected. Oh, In actual money, that's about fifteen hundred pounds. Okay, I take it back. But it would also have been the value of five cows. I don't have five cows. <laughs> that's true. Two horses. Oh, I didn't know horses were worth so much more than cows. How many pigs? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to guess ten. Ten pigs. I like the idea that you go to the old Bureau de Change hundreds of years ago, and it's just like, here's the pig to the horse. Yeah. 1.4 pigs. <laughs> I reckon I can get some arbitrage if I go through geese. <laughs> so, moving on really quite rapidly. By the time we reach the Tudors, we can see a model that's recognisably similar, both to the past and also to the modern day. We're going to wait a while on Henry VIII, unsurprisingly. Henry VIII believed firmly in his divine right to rule. But he also had his own way of doing things. He nearly always had a single favourite or chief minister from whom he would just demand whatever he wanted. That man would make sure that Parliament would provide it, and anybody who got in the way would die. So, like, an evil butler? I think Henry VIII would be furious if he called him a butler. No, 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 as in the guy was an evil butler. yes, okay. Yeah, Henry VIII would definitely have been beheaded. This is what happened to Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, St. Sir Thomas More, St. Sir, Thomas Cromwell, and Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Henry VIII has a type. (laughs) (laughs) He has two types. They're all (laughs) Thomas, and they're all going to be beheaded. Absolutely. They all died horribly. Ah, Okay. Poor Um, poor Toms. hmm. They all helped him with various things. The biggest thing really was him trying to work out how to move from one wife to another and all of the necessary details involved in that, like disestablishing the Catholic Church in the country, <laughs> all that sort of thing. A few small things. So it was one beheading of a Thomas for every two marriages. Oh, no, there were four Thomases, right? Yeah, there were four, oh, there four Thomases. Thomases. Yeah. Oh, one, so it's like 1.5. 1. 1. 1.5 wives four, per four, Thomas. One but one of the Thomases did actually outlive Henry and was killed Ooh. by Mary, his daughter, instead. Oh, I was about to say oh. good for him, but then... Mm. <laughs> Imagine, because obviously Henry's reign was awful, and I think that towards the end people would be like, when he's dead, it'll, it'll be, be fine. fine. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. It's awful, isn't How it? How annoyed yeah. would you have been yeah, to be that Thomas? I'd You're like, annoyed. of all the Thomases, <laughs> I, I've made it. Oh, yeah, the, the last surviving Thomas. I do just want to point out that I am doing Henry a disservice when I say that he killed Cardinal Wolsey. Cardinal Wolsey actually died of natural causes. He was just on his way to a trial for treason at the time. <laughs> no. That is incredible. <laughs> the natural cause being his head fell off. <laughs> yes. Anyway, this also happens to be when Parliament settled in the Palace of Westminster. No way. It was one of the convenient royal palaces, and Henry quite liked it there. And it had this big hall where Henry quite liked to play tennis. He played tennis in Westminster? In Westminster Hall, yes. Can you play tennis in Westminster today? I would say if you smuggle a very small racket past security you could play tennis for about 20 seconds until you were thrown out that's as long as i want to play tennis yeah you might get arrested but i think it would be worth it i think it'd be worth it should we do it next saturday this will be the only episode of the (laughs) (laughs) i think i think the way to play tennis in westminster hall would be to play the long game and i think if you could get yourself appointed as the uh sergeant the sergeant at arms if you get yourself appointed as the sergeant at arms then you would be in charge of the Westminster estate and you could totally play tennis in Westminster. Yes, that is the long game, to be <laughs> fair. Very long game. Yes. How, what would they arrest you for if you played tennis in the House of Parliament? Like, there's, is there a, is, there's definitely not a law against that. Oh, there are lots of laws that just catch you out. Just generous, like, like public order offences and stuff. Mm. It's just like, if you do something that's generally annoying, you can probably get nicked for it. So the other thing that was convenient about the Palace of Westminster was that it had a chapel called St Stephen's Chapel, which was generally quite a good place for people to debate bad place for playing tennis 
Too many stained glass windows. Yes. Well, exactly. But, but it had lots of chairs and yes. it was a big room. And they were facing each other. And that's why we have a parliament where people face each other in, in long rows. Because it's yes. modelled on a chapel. That is interesting. So during Henry VIII's reign, the sovereign, on the advice of the council, was actually allowed to enact laws by mere proclamation. So basically, Henry could do whatever he wanted. Wait, so enact laws by proclamation. So he would just say a thing and it would be the law. Yes. Right. Okay, we've gone back yes. a long way. That's also the last time that ever happened. Okay. So, so this is where... Forward from then. Exactly. Henry VIII's reign kind of sat between the, the historical reigns where, where the king was really the person who just did what they wanted and the future reigns where Parliament was really important. Because Henry did actually respect Parliament. They just had to do whatever he wanted in order for it to happen. Okay, that's a funny form of respect, but well, I, exactly. I get it. Sometimes he just had to kill a lot of people. It's the kind of respect wanted. my cat has for me. Well, oh. But his daughter Elizabeth, on the other hand, was much keener on keeping a steady ship. She inherited a country that was racked with rebellion and with competing religious zealotry, and she lived in constant fear of Catholic invasion or assassination. So she was determined to build stability, and she adopted the motto Semper Iadem, which means always the same. She chose ministers whom she could trust, and she worked with Parliament to retain their support. In particular, her principal advisers were William Cecil, whom she made a baron, and his son, Robert Cecil. She was so determined on the idea of keeping things stable <laughs> that she just stuck with the same person until he died and then said, sorry, we got any kids. <laughs> you got another person who looks identical to you. Exactly. <laughs> I also have a type. <laughs> My dad had Toms. I have Cecils. Exactly. <laughs> the Stuarts. In 1603, Elizabeth I died without an heir. Even on her deathbed, she refused to name a successor. But Robert Cecil, her chief minister, had kind of seen this coming, and he had actually secretly been corresponding with James VI of Scotland, Elizabeth's cousin, and asked him to come and rule the country as James VI first. And by asked him, I mean literally before Elizabeth's corpse was cold, James VI was being pronounced as James I of England. That's quick. It is quick. You've got to get in there quick with royal succession. Yeah. And also a bit cheeky to do it whilst the Queen's alive and clearly not interested in appointing her successor. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. She wanted everything to die with her. Anyway, the problem was, James wasn't very used to the idea that he couldn't just get what he wanted. Like the Tudors before him, he believed in the divine right of kings, so he didn't like the idea of asking Parliament for money, and he did it as little as possible. Whereas Parliament kind of felt that he was a Scottish bloke who had just shown up and started demanding things... He definitely wasn't Henry VIII, so he wasn't just going to get what he wanted. Instead, he had to rely on a few things that the king could do without Parliament's assent. Writing a book? He did. He wrote several books, actually. Did he? Uh, yes, so one of them was a book called Basilicon Dorum, which was a book of instructions okay. on how to rule. He wrote a oh. book about witchcraft. I know that. It's called Demonology. Yes, and Good it was fact. then used as an inspiration for... Macbeth. Yeah. Very cool. Somebody much better than I do. <laughs> uh, so this book that he wrote of instructions on ruling, in it he wrote, Hold no parliaments, but for the necessity of new laws, which would be but seldom. Right, so he's, he's not convinced. He, he's not convinced. We're going back. To be fair, though, he also said that a king should visit every one of his dominions every three years. And yet he only went to Scotland once after he became king. <laughs> That's a lot really? of trouble, isn't it? I mean, it is. But how, also, how are we defining dominions? Is it like counties? or? I think in his mind, it, it seems to have been established that he thought that if he was king of Scotland, he should go back to Scotland. But he, he, he literally... He just didn't bother. Did. He was like, actually, do you know what? Yeah. Nah. 
However, as King of England, he had inherited debts of £400,000. Oh. Yeah. An awful lot of religious tension, an ongoing war with Spain, and the after-effects of a war in Ireland. But he had also inherited Elizabeth's ministers, who were still around. Okay. The Cecils. The Cecils. Uh, well, one of the Cecils. The older Cecil had died. Uh, but they were already in place, and they knew how to run the show. So he very quickly made Robert Cecil the Earl of Salisbury, which was an upgrade. Okay. That's a big upgrade. He had previously been only a baron. Oh, that's rubbish. There's a, is there a big, there's a big difference between baron and earl. Yeah, a little bit. That's two rungs of nobility. Two, two, two rungs up. Okay. He was also supported by Thomas Edgerton, who became Baron Ellesmere and Lord Chancellor, and Thomas Sackville, who stayed on as Lord Treasurer and who James also made Earl of Dorset. James needed money, and that meant that he needed support from Parliament, because there was this established thing that you needed to ask Parliament for money. And he asked them very nicely, and they said no. However, at this point, the gunpowder plot happened. Yes. Which is a bit weird. Basically, a bunch of Catholics tried to blow up Parliament and the King at the same time. And they really buggered it up. But the really hilarious thing that I didn't realise until I was doing research for this is that you sort of see it as being, you know, us against them, the Catholics versus the Protestants. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm always on Guy Fawkes' side. Pro-treason on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's, the, that's, the fun, that's the heroic sort of, you know, he's the pirate character. It definitely right? makes the yeah. better film. I understand that, but what I'm getting at here is that James hated Parliament. He would oh, yeah. absolutely... I mean, how awful would it be He's to not only match. be blown up, but to be blown up with the people you hate? Oh, yes. yeah, you're right. That's yeah. just sort of because rude. of the people you hate. Well, exactly. That would have been really yeah. annoying insult to anything. Yes, and I think they agreed, because in the aftermath of the plot, Parliament actually agreed to give him £400,000, even though... <laughs> just they, to get rid of him. At no other time were they even remotely positive on the idea of him having money. At this point, they went, you know what, we lived through a traumatic experience, and so here's some money. <laughs> You know, you know how it is. Like, you need to write a, I'm sorry, I nearly got you blown up card. Here's <laughs> £400,000. Um, in 1610, James's request for more money was formalised by Robert Cecil in what was called the Great Contract, where James would give up some of the rights and privileges of the monarch in return for a lump sum of £600,000 and a further £200,000 a year from then onwards. That's, that's not bad. That. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like quite a lot. Do you was think it? that's what Parliament said? Oh. Well, No. Yeah, unfortunately, they said no. James was so angry that he closed Parliament for the next decade. Okay, well, that seems like an overreaction. Absolutely. (laughs) He did technically reopen it for a two-month interlude in the middle, where he asked them for more money, and they said, are you kidding? And he shut it again. (laughs) This guy's not getting the message. (laughs) Exactly. No bills were passed. In this time, James instead relied on his officials, who raised money for him in ways that were still in his power, such as selling baronetcies. Ah, oh, cash for honours. Exactly. The original scandal. History always <laughs> repeats itself. And he also, one of his other sources of money was trying to find a potential dowry, and by dowry I mean wife, for his son, Charles. That is really selling stuff off, isn't <laughs> Just it? auctioning him off on the open market, yeah. you know. It actually turned out that the search for a wife for his son was better on the foreign scene for diplomacy because of all the countries that were trying to potentially caring about the idea that they might marry him than basically anything else he could do. So he actually benefited quite a lot from having an available son for a really long period because during that time other people didn't want to declare war in case they then had to marry into the family and then it got really awkward oh, at Christmas. Yeah. That would be an awkward family dinner, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I invaded only... my fiancé's family's house and I yeah, just... if only your grandfather were... Oh no, I, I beheaded him. <laughs> sorry, sorry, that's my bad. Yeah, that's... It was also at about this point that James met George Villiers. Oh. Yeah. George Villiers was a minor nobody who 
who was very good looking. Incredibly sexy. Yeah. And he quickly found himself knighted as a gentleman of the bedchamber. Heavens. That's not a subtle title, is it? It is not a subtle title. But after that, he got some even less subtle titles of Baron, Earl, Marquis and Duke, all in the space of nine years. Night. Oh, that is that's climbing the ladder. That's a lot of promotions. A rapid ascent. Yeah. Start in the bedroom, end up with a dukedom. He was totally James's boyfriend. We're just going to establish that. Oh right yeah. Now. Yeah. James of the King James Bible fame <laughs> once stated, "You may be sure that I love the Earl of Buckingham more than anyone else, and more than you who are here assembled. I wish to speak in my own behalf, and not to have it thought to be a defect. For Jesus Christ did the same, and therefore I cannot be blamed." Christ had John, and I have George. Oh, this is a ballsy move. I mean, absolutely. He also referred to the man as his wife on several occasions. Oh, good for him. Yeah. Other people were not so happy. (laughs) I I can imagine that. I love that he's gone down the, like, you know what? Jesus had a boyfriend. What are you going to do about it? Exactly. I mean, you can't argue with that. What are you going to do? You can't be like, oh, no. I mean, no. Jesus is allowed to do it, but you're not. Exactly. And this is the man who sponsored the King James Bible. Yeah, you can't argue with this guy. He was the authority. He knows his stuff. Well, along with all of the titles that he hoovered up, Villiers became James's chief minister. And by the way, when I say hoovered up, he literally did everything. He was even appointed Chancellor of Cambridge University. What? And Lord Admiral. Oh. And all sorts of other oh, things. This is, so, this is, is what I want in a relationship. Absolutely. It's basically just really good compliments. Oh, you're so clever. You can be Chancellor of Cambridge University. Oh God, you're you such a good sailor. You're totally admiral. look like an admiral today. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Eventually, though, James was forced to call on Parliament again to respond to threats of war and accusations of corruption among his ministers. Did he call them and he was like, guys, there's a war going on. Can I have 400,000? You're literally describing no! it. Oh, James! <laughs> Parliament begrudgingly gave him some money. Oh, it worked. Yes, but, well, the thing was, Parliament impeached Francis Bacon, his Chancellor. And stripped him of his powers. This was the first impeachment in over 150 years that hadn't had the assent of the monarch. And Parliament did it in return for giving James money. So there was a bartering system hit going on here where Parliament said, look, we want you to hear us and we want him to be taken out and fine, here's some bloody money and you can just have it. So he sold, he sold his He sold Francis Bacon. Pretty much. Interesting. But that's really like the first proper impeachment without royal assent. Yeah. That is a huge parliamentary moment that's a big deal yes james died in 1625 but he passed his attitudes on to his son charles who similarly sought to raise money in his own right and he did this by claiming some of the obscure taxes that were still in his gift such as tonnage and poundage what is that tons were casks of wine So tonnage was a tax on wine imports. Oh, that will not go down well. Mm. People hated that. And poundage was just a generic tax on all imports and exports. Historically, these taxes had been given to the monarch, but it was always something that Parliament had done. And they really didn't feel it was okay for Charles to collect them without them saying yes. Charles had also kept on Villiers, who was by now the Lord Admiral, which is probably not the best. He'd kept on his dad's Admiral, Chancellor... Oh, it's dark. It is very dark, especially because Charles was racked with grief when Villiers eventually died. Three years later, by the way. Really not that long later. What was was the... Was it like, oh, he's like my other dad, or like what? Well, Charles didn't have any children until after George died and had a really terrible relationship with his wife until that point. So it's argued that he might have had a bit of a weird relationship with his dad's boyfriend. Okay, so he inherited the kingdom and a boyfriend. Although I will say that to... 
that I don't know credit or something. Um, George <laughs> Villiers was a lot closer in age to Charles than he was to James. That makes it worse. I mean, yeah. makes the original the original yes. one worse. Right. Villiers was the Lord Admiral, but he was also deeply incompetent, at least oh, when it came no. to military affairs. Um, and Parliament hated him, so they were trying to impeach him too. And eventually, he was stabbed in the street by a disgruntled army officer. <gasps> oh, that's a horrible way to go. Yeah, absolutely. After this, Charles had to rely instead on the Earls of Northumberland and Stratford, as well as Archbishop Lord. At one point, taking, you know, following in the role... These are just random people I'm telling Archbishop you the names Lord. of. Was, it, was he an Archbishop whose surname was Lord? L-A-U-D. Oh, oh. that's a great name, though. Yeah. What if he'd been Lord? Then he would have been Lord Lord. Oh, though you don't generally keep your surname when you become a lord. You normally get another name. <gasps> it makes the research really difficult because people can sometimes change their name three times in the same paragraph. I did not know that. Yes. So get, if I get became ready for lord. prime ministers having different names and oh no, titles. it's going to be like a Russian novel. Yes. Oh. Names all over the place. It is a bit tricky. Following in the footsteps of his father, Charles ruled for eleven years without calling a parliament. Okay. He was eventually forced to call Parliament again, but they were not on good terms. I have a sneaking suspicion this is going to end badly for Charles I. I mean, we wouldn't want any spoilers here. In 1640, Parliament, having realised that this impeachment stuff worked, impeached three of Charles' chief ministers for high treason, and passed a law demanding that Parliament had to sit at least every three years. Seems fair. Hmm. The reason the law was actually passed was because it was attached to a subsidy bill, so Charles got paid... <laughs> Oh, I was wondering how it got passed oh, if the king didn't okay. like it. Again, it's buying stuff. Mm. I'll give you some money if you give me X. So I mentioned three... They put it in like the small print. They were like, here, uh, the king will get loads, loads of money. Of oh, money. By the way, just, just buy me. Don't, don't read that. <laughs> don't read that bit. Don't even worry. Focus on the first page, your majesty. That's where the good stuff is. Just sign. <laughs> so Thank I mentioned you. three ministers a minute ago. Lord and Strafford, they were both impeached. Lord, and Lord. they would eventually be executed. Oh, no. Northumberland, on the other hand... He turned on the king. He joined the parliamentarians, and he went on to live a long life. That was the right choice then. Good for Absolutely. him. Absolutely. Yeah. Eventually, in 1642, the situation deteriorated into three back-to-back civil wars, culminating in Charles's beheading in 1649. Interlude. For the next 11 years, England attempted to form a republic. They tried several different approaches, and none of them worked particularly well. Why are we not counting Oliver Cromwell as prime minister? That's a good question. Firstly, what we're about to discover from this segment is that nothing that happened in this period actually mattered. Okay, so he was just rubbish. everyone realised that it was awful, and so they quickly restored everything that had happened before. Okay. That's not entirely true. There are some things that Parliament did that were important, and that's why I've got them in here. But Oliver Cromwell, while he did rule and was the top person, he was arguably closer to being a king than he was to being Mm. a parliamentarian, especially because he actually closed and reopened and then reclosed and reopened Parliament several times. Oh, did he not learn anything? Exactly. (laughs) So he was much closer to being a king than he was. Okay, fair enough. Towards the end where he basically sort of dissolved Parliament and took power to himself, there was a big speech, you can look it up, where he sort of dismisses, like, in the name of God, go, and he just dismisses (gasps) Parliament and takes it all for himself. He's such a hypocrite. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, even more so because he then tried to hand on his position of Lord Protector, because he refused the crown, his position of Lord Protector, he tried to hand it on to his son. No. During this brief period of republicanism, the Parliament did exist, and it did pass a couple of interesting laws. Crucially, in May 1649, it passed an act declaring what offences shall be adjudged treason, and an act declaring and constituting the people of England to be a commonwealth and free state. 
Right. So constitution and don't do treason. Pretty much. What's really important about this is that they were establishing that they could pass acts without a king. Yeah. There were other pack, uh, other acts that they passed at the time. There were plenty of others. Those were just the interesting ones. Actually, they, they put quite a lot of effort into paying the army as well. Well, you don't say. You just won a civil war. Well, this is the thing. because <laughs> they from Caesar. It was the army that had won the war, yeah. not parliament. And that was reflected in the fact that this parliament was entirely controlled by the grandees, who were the military leaders of this victorious new model army. Right. So it was a bit of a sort of military junta. Exactly. Yeah. A model army. Well, yes, model armies just marched into our model just, parliament. Yeah. Just a made-up of Nicole Kidman. <laughs> so their leader, Oliver Cromwell, was installed as Lord Protector, and he attempted to pass this position onto his son, as we discussed. One other thing of note from this period is that the Grandies held some debates in Putney Church to listen to the dissenting voices from within the army, again, the army being the people who mattered at this point, about the sort of rule that they wanted to establish. And Colonel Thomas Rainsborough spoke on behalf of a group called the Levellers, saying, For really I think that the poorest he that is in England hath a life to live as the greatest he, and therefore truly, sir, I think it's clear that every man that is to live under a government ought first by his own consent to put himself under that government, and I do think that the poorest man in England is not at all bound in a strict sense to that government that he hath not had a voice to put himself under. He's arguing for the vote. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this, is that, this is that holy grail. So, oh, I didn't vote for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This War, is... Some watery bins around his sword, eh? <laughs> One man, one vote. Very cool. Yeah. No How... women, obviously. No, of course so not. We can't get women to vote. Can no, they can only be queens at this point. They can't vote. Embarrassing for them. Well, exactly. <laughs> one of them can be queens. Well, actually, it's Republic. I don't know. None of them can be queens. Yeah, that's true. Not even that. The one thing they could be. The Restoration. On the 8th of April, 1660, Parliament proclaimed that King Charles II, the son of Charles I, had been the lawful monarch all along since the execution of Charles I. It had been 19 years that just never happened. Where had he been? France? Up a tree at one point. He had, right. To be fair, he had been up a tree. Because that's, gee, this is a fun fact, that is the most common pub name. Mm, the Royal Oak. Royal yeah. Named after the oak that he hid up. He also visited Stonehenge on his okay. holiday. Um, and also the holiday being the civil war when he was fleeing for his life. Well, exactly. Okay. Uh, and Scotland uh, went to Scotland at one point as well because, of course, he was still king of Scotland. He went to Cornwall too. That was he, the last place he was. Sorry, he, he just had a road trip. What was it? Yeah. What was he doing? He also dressed up as a woman, I believe, at one point. Oh, that does sound like Charles. I had a fun drag evening, honestly. This is... well, he also then spent the, his entire rule boring everybody to death with the stories about what he'd done. <laughs> Of course, back in those Go days, they way. weren't called drag queens. They were called drag lord protectors. <laughs> <laughs> Charles immediately steadied the ship. And although he didn't get on particularly well with Parliament, who couldn't stand that he wanted to be tolerant towards Catholics and Ugh. didn't approve of his repeated wars with the Dutch, his rule was still a return to a form of normality. He had a set of ministers who rose and fell, depending on how much he liked them. Most famously, he had a group called the Cabal, made up of... Clifford, Arlington, Buckingham, oh. Ashley, and Lauderdale. No. That's so good. Yeah. Rob's so... confused. It's an acronym. Cabal. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I haven't learnt all my alphabet yet. <laughs> they didn't actually work together. In fact, they often competed with one another, which is quite interesting, especially because it's around this period when we start to see the development of party politics. But they exercised authority on behalf of the king, which was the important thing. Unfortunately, Charles died in 1685, and even more unfortunately, his heir, his brother, James II and VII, was a Catholic. Oh. This was not very popular. 
He was initially received... Charles, Charles wasn't a Catholic. Charles wasn't, although I believe he made a deathbed conversion and he was married to a Catholic. Uh, okay. Yes, so I think he got pretty close and possibly was secretly, secretly but he Catholic. wasn't very open about it. He even, I think, signed a treaty with the French that agreed that he would secretly convert to Catholicism. <gasps> but we don't know if Well, he that's not did. super secret, then, if he signed a treaty saying it. They paid him quite a lot of money for that, so he may have just done it to get one up on the French. Oh. Uh, yeah. He had his fingers crossed again. Yeah, exactly. James was actually initially quite well received because he was very forgiving to exclusionists who were the people who wanted to keep Catholics out. And he kept on most of Charles' ministers, so it looked like everything was just going to continue as is. However, he did demand that Parliament remove all of the laws that were prejudiced against Catholics, to which they said, no, we like our laws that are prejudiced against Catholics. They're part of our historic constitution. How dare you take them away from us? We love to be prejudiced. Exactly. James had a daughter called Mary, who was married to her first cousin, William of Orange. Oh, I've, I've heard of these guys. Mm. William of Orange was also a descendant of Charles I. So these two people had, you know, they, they, were, they were next in line. And William was also the de facto ruler of the Netherlands. And they were both conveniently Protestant. So Mary was the heir presumptive. Robin, do you want to quickly tell us what the difference is between the heir presumptive and the heir apparent? Oh. Um, have you seen the film The Lion King? <laughs> yes, That's I have it. That, that is the difference. So it starts off with <gasps> Scar is the heir. Scar isn't the heir. Well, he starts off because he's the brother of the the king lion, I think. The yes. point, this is the point of the film that then the little baby Silver Oh, is born. and then baby's born. Okay, yeah. right, yeah, yeah. So Sorry, the, it's, it's, clearly I haven't seen it in a no, while. There we go. Basically, the heir presumptive is the heir, but an heir who could be outranked by a future birth. So that's the heir presumptive. presumptive. Whereas the heir apparent is an heir who can't be usurped, who can't be beaten oh, by Oh, okay, him. so like no one could beat Simba as long as he's alive. Exactly, because he was the king's son, he's firstborn alive. boy lion. That's the, that's the, the unbeatable heir. Whereas okay. the brother is beatable by a little lion first born So, like, boy. Harry would be the heir presumptive, but... No. Once no. one's William's king, Harry would be the heir presumptive. If William didn't have any children... But then William's kid would be the heir apparent. Exactly, yes. Okay. So, Mary was the heir presumptive because she was the eldest daughter and there were no sons. Okay. But Wait, she was the heir presumptive or the heir apparent? She was the heir presumptive because the birth she of a son... She be outranked. Okay, right, yeah, because she's, she's a girl. Yeah. So in 1688, when James gave birth to a son... James gave birth to a son. (laughs) So in 1688, when James' wife had a son... (laughs) That son became... He was very multi-talented. That son became the heir apparent. Okay. And that was a problem, because this meant that there was suddenly a Catholic dynasty that had been established. Whereas previously, James was quite old. They kind of thought that he was a bit... It was a bit too late for him to have any kids... There were also immediately rumours up and down the country that this child was some sort of changeling that had been smuggled in by elves or Catholics or something worse because they didn't want to believe that this was the end of Protestantism. Maybe he was a really ugly baby. Mm. Well, at the same time, James felt that it was necessary to prosecute seven bishops for refusing to support his attempts at introducing religious freedom. These bishops didn't want religious freedom. They wanted everybody to be Protestant. And so, although their prosecution actually failed... This caused uproar, and it was the end for James. At this point, six nobles and a bishop, later dubbed... Walked into a pub. <laughs> the Immortal Seven, Ooh. which is a great name for a movie. It is. It is. It's, like, it's like a Wild West movie. Yeah. What would be the plot of The Immortal Seven? Well, the plot would be that they would send a letter to William of Orange. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's, a pretty, it's an exciting film. <laughs> asking yes. him to invade their country. Okay, that is quite exciting. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. As letters go. Although it's funny that I described them as nobles, because... You might notice something about them. So first up, we had Henry Sidney. He was an army officer and MP, and the uncle of the Lord President of the Council. 
And by MP, I mean Member of Parliament. But I hope I don't oh, have, have to explain that. We have MPs now. We've had MPs since the point where we've had a Commons, really. Which was... Several hundred years back. Mm, okay, the, yeah. the modern parliament. The... Yes, so the modern parliament, right? Okay. Right. MP oh, is a bit wow. of a weird one because the word, the, the name MP, member of parliament, could theoretically be applied to lords as well, because okay. they're members of parliament. It's just that they're also lords, okay. and being lords makes them members of parliament. So it's easier to not describe them as MPs. That okay. It's cooler to be a lord. Yes. Yes. So we had Henry Sidney, an army officer and MP, mm-hmm. and the uncle of the Lord President of the Council. He would be re-elected as an MP in 1689, after this happened, for the election that pronounced William and Mary as being, them, as being monarchs, and he was then made a Viscount. Edward Russell, a naval officer who had fallen out of favour due to a family member's involvement in a plot against the king. He was later elected as an MP, made Admiral of the Fleet and Commander-in-Chief of the Navy and an Earl. Oh. Charles Talbot, an Earl and Army officer, and a former member of the household of Charles II. He was made Secretary of State for the Southern Department, and ultimately, a duke. The Southern Department, by the way, is this weird thing where they have this separation between the people who are responsible for the North and the people who are responsible for the South. But when I say the South, that includes Ireland, the Channel Islands, France, Spain, Portugal, Switzerland, the states of Italy, and the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. quite a lot. At some point, we decided that it would make more sense to have somebody in charge of all the things at home, like the sort of home office yes and somebody in charge of all the things that are foreign like the foreign before this point it was like scotland everything else something like that yes they were like scotland is such a pain Mm, someone's entire job is scotland (laughs) but next up was william cavendish who was an ex-mp and an earl who was active in the house of lords he became lord steward and was created the duke of devonshire Thomas Osborne, an ex-MP and Earl, who had previously been Lord Treasurer and a powerful force in politics, but had fallen from grace and had actually just spent five years in the Tower of London. He was made Lord President of the Council and a Marquess, and then Lord High Steward and a Duke. Right, so they've all gone up in the world. (laughs) Sir Richard Lumley was a Viscount in the Irish Peerage and an army officer who had held positions in the Royal Household. He was made an Earl, Lieutenant General and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. And then Henry Compton. He was the Bishop of London and also an ex-army officer. <laughs> so when That's I asked you, could abbesses have swords? The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Have a sword. He had technically just been a cornet, which is the I... lowest rank that we ever had of officers. Uh, like so a little baby he... officer. He was just like cleaning people's shoes. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was still an officer, so he would have been in charge of... Cleaning, yeah. cleaning the good shoes. <laughs> but that was before he joined the church, to be fair. He wasn't just appointed and like... <laughs> yeah. Two jobs on his bucket. Bishop by day. Um, he had been removed from the Privy Council and fired as Dean of the Chapel Royal, and he'd actually been suspended by James. And after this, he crowned William and Mary, oh, because wow. the Archbishop of Canterbury refused to do so. And he was never made Archbishop of Canterbury himself, despite really wanting the job. And everybody else who signed this bloody letter getting really nice yeah. things out of it. Yeah, and he, he, he played come? along. He, he mm, played the game. He didn't get anything. Oh. He crowned them. That's a big yeah. role. He did. Oh, and then he could do nothing more for them. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, he played his hand too soon. Yeah. So what do we notice about the people that we've just spoken about? Literally, I can't remember any of them. Lots of nice peerages they got, and also lots of army stuff. They were all blokes. So and they were blokes. That's a very fair point. The thing that I thought was really interesting about these people was how many of them weren't in power at the time. They were all people who had been kind of on the edges. They were all the sort of cousin of somebody or somebody who had been there, but then then kind of fallen out of favour. Yeah. Which is very interesting because we have this narrative that Parliament invited 
a new king. But actually, the seven people that did it, although they were all involved with the military in one way, shape or form, they weren't the leading people of the reign. They just very quickly became the leading people of the reign. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the narrative that we have about the idea that the Glorious Revolution was essentially us inviting William to come and take over, actually, that was all written retrospectively. These people were all probably malcontented people who, while they were probably right that everyone hated James, it wasn't an official letter from Parliament. It was a bunch of down and outs. Some background guys. Yeah. Interesting. And then as soon as it worked, the history was rewritten to make it some... Oh, exactly. So they took the foreground. Inviting, mm. whatever. It's just some guy. Mm. It's just seven guys in a pub. And the important thing is that William accepted their invitation to join them in the pub. <laughs> and the pub he landed being a... the crown. <laughs> he landed at Brixham in November of 1688. By the way, 1688 is the year where everything happened for James. His son was born, he attempted to arrest some bishops, and William invaded. Oh. That's a, imagine the sort of the end-of-year postcard you send to your family. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a, a tricky year so this it's year. It's been a bit of a busy one. Mm. William had brought with him 463 ships and 40,000 men. That's quite a lot. As you do when somebody sends you an invitation. Were they all <laughs> yeah. orange? Probably. I think so. Or at least they had oranges with them. Definitely. They were all incredibly orange on 40,000 of them. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> I've got the biggest army. <laughs> so, James fled. He literally just <laughs> ran. Yeah. He actually it's threw like, the Great look Seal. Look at all these orange people coming <laughs> into my country. He actually threw the Great Seal in the Thames before oh. he left. Which was probably oh, okay yeah. because it could Seals Because it could yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, He literally went, you know what? If I can't have government, no one can. Oh, and threw a, away the seal. Wow. Exactly. And, and he left. And Parliament had to work out what had happened. And they uniquely decided that James had in fact left the throne vacant. <laughs> they said, you know what? If you leave like that, you're not king anymore. Yeah. You're gone. You're dead to us. Yeah. yeah. A, and by dead to us, I literally mean succession left. takes place. Okay. Yeah. And they proclaimed William and Mary as joint reigning monarchs. Mm. Is, is this the first? first? Oh, Good question. You see, so, arguably it isn't on the basis that Mary I's husband, oh, Philip, Philip of, Spain. of Spain, was also considered king. However, king, Philip of Spain was only considered king while Mary was queen, and he wasn't king in his own right. He was essentially king consort, a role that we have never used again. Whereas William no. was king in his own right, and Mary was queen in her own right. And they were simply together at the same time as one power couple in charge. And William was so king in his own right that even when Mary died, yes. he still kept being king, even though he was this Dutch bloke who she'd married. Mm, exactly. Crucially, though, before they took the throne, there was a negotiation. Parliament didn't really want to just crown them. Parliament was in a bit of a position of authority at this point. So they set conditions. They passed acts. They agreed that William and Mary could become monarchs if they would pass the Bill of Rights and the Coronation Oath Act. These were acts that put limits on the powers of the monarch. Mm -hmm. They established regular parliaments. They established free elections, parliamentary privilege, and parliament's ultimate control over taxation. Fully established from now on forever. Also, the Bill of Rights went into a lot of detail about how James had just been awful. And they really hated him. <laughs> it was just a big burn letter yeah. at the beginning. So they funny. were glad to be rid of him. It's like a mean girl. But... Yeah. Finally. Oh God, he was so annoying. <laughs> Parliament also took control of the military. 
which was established permanently. Before this, it was actually illegal to set up a permanent military, but now permanent military, which Parliament controlled. And they established what the oath the monarch would take would be from then on. And they made it really clear that if another king broke their bloody oath, there would be repercussions this time. (laughs) So what we can see here is Parliament flexed their authority and they established themselves as the dominant political power. And you've got a king and a queen, but Parliament has power and that will never be taken away from them again. That's great. But you know what they could really do with? They could do with a guy. A guy who was like the best, like the first guy, the best guy. Prime guy? Yeah, mm. ultimate guy, yeah. prime guy. Oh, they should prime. come up with a better term than yeah. prime guy. I wonder if someone's coming that might might help them with that. Oh, okay. Should we find out? And that's where we'll leave it for today. Oh, oh. so dear viewers, you would find out. Um, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Um, I really hope that people have listened to this because it's our first ever episode. <laughs> yes. It's very exciting. I do think it's important that we say thanks to a few people. Um, ourselves yeah yeah ourselves yeah we should thank rex factor we should and totalis rankium yeah and saga thing although i haven't listened to oh i love saga thing and pontifacts all just all of them by the time we've published this we will hopefully have got permission if i've learned anything from this episode is that if we just offer them four hundred thousand pounds oh no i was gonna say if i've learned anything from this episode is that if we get swords (laughs) guys we can impeach rex factor I also want to say a big thank you to Grace from the No Small Rolls podcast. That's rolls as in bread rolls, or indeed drum rolls. Oh. I did not know that machine could do that. Grace gave me some amazing help with setting this up. She also gave some wonderful advice about podcasting, uh, and it's a really great D&D podcast that I recommend to anyone. So thank you very much. And we will see you next week with... First, we're going to plug the socials we don't yet have. Oh, yeah. You can follow us on Twitter at primetime underscore cast uh, or email us at writeonwriteoff at gmail.com. That's right, R-I-G-H-T-H-O-N-W-R-I-T-E-O-F-F at gmail.com. Alongside our episodes talking about the Prime Ministers, we're also going to have episodes talking about the modern day because there are some things that happen in politics that are... Really, really weird. These will be like short, fun, explanatory. Rob's going to take us through the terms. He's They're gonna certainly going to be short. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to explain what is an exchequer. Yes, that could come up. going to tell us about the Downing Street cat. Yes. Um, cats, plural. And all sorts of other stuff like the House of Lords. Less important stuff than the cats, but stuff that is also important. Our next podcast will be the current premiership in this country. What modern prime ministers are like. You've had a thousand years of history from Witangamots to the Bill of Rights, and now you're going to find out what an actual normal Prime Minister is in the 21st century. So we hope you're looking forward to that. Hopefully it will be released next week, but we might decide that that's too aggressive a schedule. Don't make promises we can't keep. It's going to be released <laughs> next year. <laughs> we, we will hold a parliamentary episode once every three years. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody, and Good night. goodbye. Goodbye. Cut it together. It'll be fine.